All right, gentlemen, we're going to get started. We're going to start a little early. Uh, we have probably enough material that we could talk and cover uh, two hours worth of time. We're going to move as quickly as we can. Uh, my wife has told me to talk as fast as I possibly can, and I'll do whatever I can to try to move this along. Uh, the topic is titled, When the Remnant goes off the grid. When the remnant goes off the grid. Put another way, we're talking about shepherding the underground church. Uh, I have taught this uh, three times since last July. Uh, I had the privilege in teaching in a, a closely related affiliated church in Hutchinson, Kansas in early November. I taught it in October. I taught it in early October uh, here in one of our fellowship groups in the same room, and then I taught it in Sundays in July, uh, last July. Now, I'm mentioning those two only to mention, only to say uh, that there may be some additional historical material uh, in those recordings that you may want to check on. Uh, we are going to be looking at the biblical precedent, the history, and some of the lessons that we desperately need to learn from the underground church. One of the lessons from COVID is that we are never more than one government mandate or order away from a situation where even in the Western world, we are now having to deal with the reality of the underground church. We were not as well prepared as we should have been last time around. We may not have as much time in the future to get our stuff together as we would need or want. So I commend you for being here. The theme of this year's conference is, of course, shepherding the remnant from the beginning, the remnant has often had to go underground to regularly meet in a clandestine manner. So we're going to be looking at biblical precedent, history, lessons to be learned. We're going to actually start with the idea of the remnant. The passage we're going to take a look at comes after there had been one of the greatest periods of immorality and apostasy ever experienced by and within the people of God. The monarch, man known to history as Ahab, and his wife Jezebel are without parallel in Scripture for wickedness, uh, due in part to some of the content in the book of Revelation. Uh, we tend to think of Jezebel as a sexual, seductive woman, the primary image that Jezebel depicts in the Old Testament, however, is one of being one of the most violent, vicious, and bloodthirsty individuals in all of Scripture. They are without parallel in Scripture for wickedness as a couple. There had been a wholesale slaughter by Jezebel of the prophets of God. The Scripture tells us that we do not know how many had been put to death by her uh, when she had become the queen of Israel. 
There had been an attempt to fully establish the worship of Baal, Ashtoreth, and Moloch, complete with the ritual sacrifice of innocent infants. Immediately after the scripture records Ahab's devotion to Baal and the death of two young children, most likely as part of Baal or Moloch worship, this is in 1 Kings 15, 31 through 34, Elijah comes out of nowhere in 1 Kings 17. He comes out of nowhere and confronts Ahab, informing him of God's sentence of drought. At God's direction, he then goes into hiding, first at the brook Kareth. That's where we know that God arranged to have him fed by ravens. Later on, and it's an interesting, God sends him up into modern-day Lebanon to a city known as Zarephath. It just so happens this is the hometown or the homeland, I should say, uh, of Jezebel. God actually hides Elijah out in Jezebel's home country. Uh, there's a line from a movie, the closer you are to danger, the farther you are from harm. And that uh, may have been true at this particular time. After approximately three and a half years, Elijah comes out of hiding. He confronts Ahab and he calls Israel back to God at Mount Carmel, 1 Kings 18. You men know the story. He calls down fire from heaven. He then directs and most likely participates in the execution at close range of 450 prophets of Baal. Following that, he outruns a team of horses, Ahab's chariot, over a period, over a distance that is comparable to the modern marathon course. We tend to lose sight of that. Then he hears that uh, Jezebel has put out a death warrant for him. He is fatigued, quite understandably. He has been threatened with execution by Jezebel. The text tells us that he flees into the desert. If you look at what was taking place in his life, he very likely may have had what we would today call PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Okay? And we tend to be a little bit too hard on Elijah in the discussion that we're going to be seeing, uh, but he finds himself at God's direction on the top of Mount Sinai. This is approximately 45 days after the confrontation on Mount Carmel. And he has a discussion, he has a conversation with God. And you have to sense an almost implicit question of why. Why has all of this had happened to me? What, what's the reason, God, for why this is taking place? And I think we can understand that. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in Romans 11, verses 2 through 5, 
summarizes the conversation that took place between God and Elijah. He gives some different information. He gives a slightly different twist than found in 1 Kings 19. Let's take a look at it, read it. It's on the screen. Uh, We'll go moving quickly through it. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. The overall goal is to affirm that God has not detached and gotten rid of the people of Israel. But in doing so, he gives an overview of the the concept of the remnant that continues to be applicable even today. And doing so, he provides us with information that helps us to understand why the remnant often and frequently over the course of the uh, Christian era has found itself having to go underground. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. Then Paul says, what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. We don't know if that was men generically, 7,000 people, or if that was 7,000 men accompanied by a comparable number of women uh, and possibly even children. But we know that he says there are 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, in the same exact manner then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Uh, In 1 Kings 19, he says, I will leave. Elijah has said, I'm the only one that's left. God using in a play of uh, words, he says, I will leave. In Romans, it says, I have left. It's past tense. It's an absolute certainty. Uh, In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. I'm going to point out very quickly 10 aspects They are left, they are kept by God's choice. Sovereign election, no doubt about it. They are kept, they are left by God's grace. Human depravity, no doubt about it. They are kept by God's grace. This underscores, this emphasizes the importance that, and we see this later on in Romans 11, it's by grace, it is not by works. Human depravity, we cannot merit God's favor. We cannot merit justification before God on our own. It is sovereign grace. It is sovereign choice. Dr. MacArthur, uh, in one of his recent sermons, made a comment that uh, human depravity was probably the most hated doctrine in all of Scripture. And then he says at the end, the other most hated doctrine 
and all of Scripture would be sovereign election. So we have the two most hated doctrines right at the outset. The third, when we look at it, helps us to understand, you put all three of these together, this tells us why the church down through the history has often found itself in the posture of being underground. They have not bowed the knee to Baal. They have not bowed the knee to Baal. First Kings adds they have not kissed Baal. Uh, it was a gesture of homage, a gesture of worship. Put it another way, they have not bowed to the lordship of Baal. Now, um, Baal, the god of agricultural prosperity and an agrarian economy. Baal, a god who, as best we can tell, if you look at Jeremiah 32, 35, as a part of his worship, seemed to regularly have the sacrifice of human infants. On the screen, they have not bowed the knee to Baal, to the lordship of Baal, to the idolatry that ritually sacrificed infants. First of all, it's idolatry. Secondly, it involved the ritual sacrifice and abuse of children. Third, an idolatry that focused on economic prosperity as the primary good. You could do multiple sermons on all three of those uh, very quickly, and we all know that. We have to move very quickly. Why? Why have they not done that? They love and are committed to the word and the lordship of the triune God. Some of us here are old enough to recall the folk singer Bob Dylan. He had a song that succinctly puts it into focus. You're going to have to serve somebody. It might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but you're going to be serving somebody. It is a very stark, realistic choice. The remnant, and this is probably the most fundamental characteristic of the remnant in all of Scripture, is committed to the lordship of our triune God. You put all of those three things together, it is going to create the opposition that, experience, that we experience. But wait, there's more to add to it. Uh, Elijah is told that there are 7,000 who have not bowed the knee. Now, he thinks he's all alone. He might have had a clue when he had some, clearly some help on Mount Carmel, that there were maybe some more people around. But there were more of them, more of the remnant, than was known to the eye or the mind of man. God has reserved his people. And there are more than we tend to think. Technology. They know that they are in a time of bitter persecution, ultimately from the evil one. Uh, we saw earlier that Jezebel had commissioned and carried out the massacre of the prophets of God. There is a very good chance that in the 
period of time immediately before Mount Carmel, uh, she may have massacred an additional hundred prophets. Uh, Elijah is told by a man by the name of Obadiah that he had hidden a hundred prophets in two separate caves. You've got already the underground taking place. There are a number of, there's a, you'll find all kinds of speculation online in the books in terms of what happened to those prophets. It's possible they may have been smuggled out to safety somewhere outside of the land of Palestine. Uh, but it's also very likely and probably most consistent with what Elijah says to understand that they may well have been massacred. Possibly someone overheard the conversation uh, between Elijah and Obadiah and relayed the information seeking favor from Ahab or Jezebel. Uh, but that would explain why he says, I am the only one that's left. And he says that multiple times. He says that once on Carmel. He says that repeatedly on the top of Mount Sinai in his conversation with God. There is a time of bitter persecution. Ultimately, we would understand in the light of Scripture from the evil one. The remnant knows the need to gather together for mutual encouragement the remnant knows a desperate need for God's intervening action. The remnant waits confidently for God to act. And we see the remnant waiting for God to act, and he does act on Carmel. Now, paradoxically, at one and the same time, they are protected. God says, I've kept the remnant. He's protected the remnant. And yet they are subject to extreme danger. And sometimes the way that God implements that protection of his remnant, and this has been the case uh, pretty much throughout history, he sometimes does so by directing them underground. Richard Vermbrand, and we'll spend time talking more about him later, uh, one of the greatest men in the underground church, reminds us that it is crucial that we understand the continuity of identity with biblical precedent. A certain sense of continuity is helpful in both maintaining our commitment and in seeking wisdom, and lessons that have been learned over the millennia often still prove helpful. Okay, we have this, 1 Kings 17, 13. I've already mentioned this. God directs Elijah to the brook Kareth. Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Uh, They're out looking for water for their cattle uh, after a prolonged period of drought, out looking for grass. It says, Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, for when Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and provided them with food and water. We have here from the very outset the idea of going underground. By smooth words, he will turn to godlessness 
those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. This is from Daniel 11.32. Probably two fulfillments of this. The future one is yet to come. The more immediate fulfillment took place during the intertestamentary period, the rebellion of the Maccabees. Antiochus Epiphanes is attempting to corrupt the temple. Uh, He actually tried to have a pig sacrificed on the altar. Scripture tells us, refers to it as the abomination of desolations. Uh, Daniel comments, the people who know their God will stand firm and take action. Part of what Antiochus had been doing was co-opting some who were nominally part of the people of God. By smooth words, he will turn to godlessness, those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But the remnant, the people who know their God, will display strength and take action. Now, this is the first and only time in my life, and I don't expect that I will ever do it again, quote or cite to the Apocrypha. <laughs> first Maccabees 2, 27 through 31, Mattathias cried out in the city with a loud voice, everyone that has zeal for the law and maintaineth the testament, let him follow me. It says, he and his sons fled into the mountains and left all that they had in the city, Uh, It goes on to say that people came out to join them. Uh, In his Antiquities of the Jews, Josephus tells us that they initially suffered suffered severe casualties and that he expressly states they dwelt in caves. Both William Perkins and John Owen uh, see Hebrews 11.35 as describing what happened to the Maccabees, or at least in part, what took place within the Maccabees as they were going through that period of time. 1137, 38, excuse me, they were stoned. They were sawn in two. Now, that is most likely Isaiah. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Get this next phrase. Men of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. The underground church. We can't call it the church. It doesn't fit well with our Um, eschatology. This was prior to the church age. The people of God, however, are underground. It will continue. You look in the New Testament and we see that our Lord, even from when he is an infant, knows what it is to be part of the underground when it comes to surviving the attacks of the evil one. Matthew gives the description of the flight to Egypt. This is an avoiding Herod's scheme to massacre all of the infants under two years of age. He's trying to wipe out the Messiah. God awakens Joseph through a dream, and he flees to Egypt. The Gospel of John 
gives a description of the ministry of Christ that frequently includes a number of incidents, and you have the sites in front of you. John 2, 24 through 25, he did not entrust himself to men. 518, the Jews were seeking to kill him. 615, perceiving they wanted to take him by force, he secludes himself. He goes on, and you continue to find that up through even chapters 12, and then to some extent into chapters 14 through 16. The Synoptic Gospels' descriptions of the location of the Last Supper. You remember the story. He tells two of the disciples to go in. You will see a man matching a certain description. You are to say to him, the master says, where am I to celebrate this dinner with my disciples? You go with him. Clandestine. Okay? Consistent with the pattern of the underground church. Moving forward, Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Very possible. Very possible it was the same location where they had celebrated the Last Supper. That was at the time of Pentecost as we know it. Moving forward, Acts chapter 12, verses 11 through 17. Actually, you see the same thing in five, chapter, verse 5. Uh, the people of God are gathered together for intense prayer. What's going on? One of the disciples has already been executed. Herod is anticipating doing the same thing the very next day, having Peter executed. Peter is sound asleep. The angel comes to him in prison, wakes him up. Peter doesn't quite think he's fully awake. He suspects he may still be dreaming, but he follows the angel. He realizes finally when he has been led outside of prison. The interesting thing, when Peter comes to himself, he says when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. This very likely may have been one and the same as the location where the Last Supper was held, one and the same where the believers were gathered at the time of Pentecost. And it's interesting that Luke's mention of this location may indicate that the time he writes, they're not using that place anymore because it's already been found out and he's not going to compromise anything by mentioning that particular site. The interesting thing also, you go to the end of the passage, <clears throat> Peter says, report these things to James and the brethren. And then it says, he left and went to another place. The scripture tells us of at least three house church locations. Philemon, the book of Philemon, verse 2, we read of the church that meets, that met in the house of Philemon. Very likely Philemon's son was the pastor of that church. It worked out very well. Colossians 4.15, we know nothing about this person other than she 
hosted a church in her home, the house church in the home of a woman by the name of Nympha. 1 Corinthians 16, 19, we read of a house church in the home of a couple that we've met in the book of Acts. They're the couple that uh, when they hear Apollos uh, teaching only a portion of the truth, they pulled him aside and they taught him a more excellent way, working together, Priscilla and Aquila. 1 Corinthians 16, 19. Now why study this topic? I'm going to suggest to you five reasons. Doing so, when you focus, when you look at what the church has had to do during times of intense persecution, when it has had to go underground, uh, it often provides a very precise clarification of focus and an elimination of inessentials. We talk about matters that are of primary importance, matters of secondary and sometimes tertiary importance. That becomes very clear when you are in the context of an underground church. Your eschatology may differ, and yet you are brothers in Christ. All right? To fully understand the history of the church, to empathize, let me step back a moment. In 1962, Banner of Truth issued a magazine as a commemoration 300 years of the great ejectment of the Puritans in 1662. The article says, in our comfortable age, we need to recall what Christians once suffered for the gospel in this country. We need reminding of what faithfulness to the truth meant when the Conventicle Act was in force when ruinous fines, imprisonment, transportation, and exile attended the hitting meetings of persecuted believers, when 5,000 died from the sufferings they endured, when so many Christians were in prison in Bristol that children, children, continued the services alone, when the streets of Taunton flowed in blood, and when religion, as Bunyan found during his 12 years in jail, walked not in golden slippers in the sunshine and with applause, but in rags and contempt and hazarded all for God. They will teach us that the church can receive more injury from the sunshine of worldly prosperity than she ever received from the storms of persecution. Another reason we want to empathize with those of us, and there are men here who have come from churches where people are still being arrested solely, precisely, and only because of their faith in Christ. We want to empathize with those of us who are having to live and worship underground. As I read some of their accounts, tears come to my eyes. My line coach in high school used the expression, fire on the belly and ice on the brain. I'll do a paraphrase on that, and I'm going to say, studying this should give tears in the eyes and iron in the spine. Tears in the eyes and iron in the spine. We should have a greater sense of commitment and resolution as we go forward. To recognize certain dilemmas common to the church at these times. To prepare for future attacks in the church. And as I mentioned earlier, we are never more 
in the Western world, and we would not have been able to say this four years ago. We are never more than one government ruling or mandate away from having to assume an underground posture. Now, three years ago, this July, Grace Community Church's elders issued the document titled The Biblical Case for the Church's Duty to Remain Open. In that document, we made the following statement. Christians are therefore commanded not to forsake the practice of meeting together, Hebrews 10.25, and no earthly state has a right to restrict, delimit, or forbid the assembling of believers. We've always supported the underground church in nations where Christian congregational worship is deemed illegal by the state. The underground church, and I'm going to define it broadly, regularly meeting illegally and most often secretly. There are two cases. I was trying to find a definition. This is months ago, and I found two decisions in the United States courts of Circuit Courts of Appeals uh, broadly defining the underground church. Uh, one of you guys has been in some of my law classes, and so you're nodding. You'd expect me to do this. Uh, it was a basic common sense application. The point being, if they have to meet underground, it gives evidence of the fact that they are being persecuted. We had discussion as to were we really being persecuted? Okay, let's look at it this way. If you have to meet uh, in a clandestine or secret manner, no doubt about it, we're being persecuted. Now, um, I'm using the term to refer to both Protestants as well as Catholics, largely and generically. In China, the term underground church tends to be limited uh, to Roman Catholic churches that have refused to buy into uh, the government-controlled version of the Catholic church. Protestant churches who refuse to come under government control will be referred to as house churches. Uh, You may also hear them referred to as unregistered churches. I think this is important to make the distinction fully underground as distinct from quasi-underground. Fully underground, meeting secretly, meeting confidential, meeting quietly uh, without government support, often risking arrest, imprisonment, maybe even worse. Uh, And I would also say you have to distinguish that from quasi-underground. What do I mean by quasi-underground? They're meeting illegally. They're meeting openly, but in plain sight. Okay? This describes what Grace Community Church was during most of the summer and fall of 2020. This also describes many of the house churches that we saw in China. Uh, They had membership, seating capacity of 1,000 to 1,500 people. This also describes accurately uh, one of the churches in the history of the church in Uganda, the Church of the Redeemer. They knew where they would find them. They were meeting openly. They were meeting in plain sight, but they were meeting illegally as they could be. Sometimes what has to happen is that we move from quasi-underground to fully underground. And this happened uh, during 2020. 
uh, and we may need in the future to be able to make that transition more quickly and more effectively. Potential punishments, of course, may vary greatly. We understand that. Now, we want to look here at the history. We're going to move very quickly. I want to tell you their story, but it will interfere if I do so to the degree that I want with some of the lessons that we need to learn from them. So we're going to look very quickly. Uh, the early church, this is prior to uh, the Edict of Milan in 313 when Constantine establishes Christianity uh, as the faith of the Roman Empire. By the way, it should be kept in mind, each group, each group that we look at represents often untold numbers of people forced to risk their lives to follow Christ. House churches, we've already seen that. They would meet at times in catacombs, meet in the cemeteries, okay? The ichthus symbol, you guys know what I mean, the ichthus symbol? Okay, there are some people who have forgotten. When a man thinks he's talking to a believer at this particular time, he leans down right, draws in the sand an arc. If the guy is a believer, he might draw the arc to finish the sign of the fish. Okay? Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior, there was a time, my wife tells me, that this was on virtually every Bible cover that uh, you would acquire at Grace Church. A lot of you guys are old enough, you have enough gray hair on, so you remember what I'm talking about. But keep in mind, this was a sign, this was a practice to maintain some degree of safety and security when the church went underground. Athanasius, Athanasius Contramundo, he is exiled five times in the course of 17 years during his service as a bishop by four different Roman emperors. The Valdensians, they started in a period approximately 1170, and to some extent you can still find Valdensians. But during much of their early years, before the Reformation, uh, they had to meet confidentially, they had to meet quietly, they had to meet in secret, clandestinely. The Bohemian Hussites. I was talking with a man. I don't know if he's here. I talked to him up at the, the TMAI conference on uh, Tuesday. He was from the Czech Republic. He's from that area. He's part of that uh, heritage. The Lollards in England. John Wycliffe's group. Some of the early Anabaptists. I put the qualification on only because some of the early Anabaptists go into the ozone on some of the doctrine that they taught. Uh, most of us have a high level of heritage from the Anabaptists, if for only uh, our belief in baptism as being something for believers. But the Anabaptists often had to meet clandestinely. The Walloons. The Walloons are French-speaking Calvinists from the Netherlands and from Belgium. The French Huguenots, when you study the Huguenots, you find yourself often reduced to periods of intense grief. St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, August 
1572. Estimates range between 50,000 and 70,000 killed on one day in France. Why were they killed? Solely for sharing godly doctrine. Just last week, on March 1st, Christianity Today, excuse me, not Christianity Today, Christian History, uh, noted that it was the anniversary of something that happened on March 1st, 1562. One of the French nobles realized that Huguenots were meeting in a building. He locked the door, locked them in, and set the building on fire. This was the massacre at Vassy. Sixty people at least died in the course of that. Wikipedia identifies at least 107 young men sentenced to what would prove to be most likely in almost every case a living death serving as galley slaves on French galleys. They referred to their assemblies, their times together as assemblies in the desert. The same principle. The underground church. The London underground church. This is uh, what took place in England uh, after Edward dies and Bloody Mary comes to the crown. Steve Lawson has mentioned the execution of John Rogers, others, Thomas Cranmer, Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley, some of the greatest men in the history of the church died being persecuted, being burnt to the stake at that particular time. Many of them, this prompted them to go to Geneva, among them being John Knox. John Knox is part of the first wave of what we're talking about, the underground church in Scotland. The Privy Kirks. These were the Bible studies of the time. These were the groups that met in homes, most likely illegally, most likely confidentially, quietly. And then the Scottish Covenanters. This is under the leadership of Alexander Henderson. This becomes very personal to me. In both... Knox's era, and in the era of the Scottish Covenanters, there were men named George Crawford. One of them was one of the nobles that signed the Covenant of Air in support of Knox. Another man, December 1666, after he has fought with the Covenanters in a battle that was fought to fight against the restrictions on the number of people that could meet for worship, he's captured. Following the Battle of Rullian Green in the Pentland Rising, and he's executed. I'm wearing the Crawford Tartan today, partly because I love it, and partly because as I'm speaking, it's in tribute to those men. It's very personable, very personal. The post-ejectment English Puritans, 2,000 
pastors are ejected from their positions in August 1662 uh, when the English crown enacted law prohibiting their continued service in that regard. 2,000 men are thrown out of their positions. They are required to, if they proceed at all, to be pastoring in an underground manner. Among them, Thomas Watson, among them are many of the greatest Puritans that we know we enjoy their writing today. The 20th century Korean church under Japanese rule, if they still have copies, Banner of Truth out in the tent has a book that would be well worth buying. The Korean Pentecost is its title. Uh, They make the comment, and this is describing what happened in the underground church in Korea under both Japanese rule and and, uh, communist rule. Uh, The writer says, No one person knows or ever will know the number and names of all of those who died as a result of their opposition to shrine worship. That's true of the church, the underground church as a whole. The German confessing church, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, two names you probably have never heard of, you should know. Uh, There is a book that Erdmann's publishes titled Preaching in Hitler's Shadow. Uh, One man by the name of Julius von Jan, he preaches from Jeremiah 22, 29. Land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Just saying that you feel the passion of the man. Seriously beaten. Brought into the German army, and if I'm not mistaken, he was sent to the Russian front. God allowed him to survive. Paul Schneider won the Iron Cross in the First World War, becomes a pastor, refuses to serve communion to overt Nazi party members, finds himself in a concentration camp, climbs up to a window, and while he's in solitary confinement, is preaching out of the window to inmates in the concentration camp. Paul Schneider, when they turned his body over to his wife, they did so in a sealed casket. They didn't want her to see what had been done to his body. Paul Schneider. The 20th century Russian church, Georgi Vins. If you know of anyone with the last name of Weens, last name of Weens, that is the uh, modern English counterpart to Vins's last name. Uh, he is probably one of the most noted leaders in the 20th century Russian church under communist domain. The Chinese house church, I also put up there the unregistered church movement under Japanese and communist rule. Wang Mingdao. Wang Mingdao is the name of the man who provided the greatest leadership in the late 40s, early 50s. A great deal of his life was spent in confinement because of his faith. Nonetheless, he provided an example. He provided the leadership that got the house church movement to begin. I'm told that the second wave of the Chinese house church 
begins shortly after what we would remember as the Cultural Revolution. More recently, you have, and I'll give you three names, Jin Ezra, since the first name listed in Chinese uh, terminology is usually the family name, surname, you might understand it to be Ezra Jin, but uh, we'll go with as is. Jin Tianming, and then finally a man by the name of Wang Yi. Wang Yi, uh, a tremendous individual. He had been an attorney. He had practiced in the area of human rights. God calls him to himself, allows him to become a believer. He then becomes a pastor, and he has assumed the role. Uh, he assumed the role of a church. Wang Yi was convicted following a secret trial on December 30th, 2019. He was sentenced to nine years, three years without any civil rights whatsoever. Wang Yi, and I'll come back to him in a few minutes, I had dinner last night with two men who are here from Chinese house churches, and I asked one who's here, What's it like being in a Chinese house church? I clarified as to what I had heard uh, before we started today. His reaction to me was, I just had a phone call from a pastor, and I think I got it right, telling me that another family had been arrested for following Christ. I told this to my wife, This morning, she says, cut something and put that in. That's what it's like to be in the Chinese house church. And please forgive me if I didn't get it right. That's what it's like to be in the Chinese house church. The Eastern European church behind the Iron Curtain. We'll come back to Richard Vermbrand. The church in Uganda under Idi Amin. The pastor was Kifa Simpanji. The church is the church of the Redeemer. The church in the Islamic world, perhaps understandably, we do not know of any particular individual who has stood out as providing exemplary courage or leadership, primarily because there is such a need to maintain a high level of secrecy. The Western church under COVID. You have a statement up there. I kept in touch with this individual. I will not uh, disclose his name. He's a uh, relatively recent TMS grad. He has a surname that you would find in the history of Scotland uh, among some of the lords that supported Knox. I asked him how it was. He says, everything is good. On the edge of your seat, but good. Every time someone comes in late and I look up while preaching, I wonder if it's the police. But so far, we've avoided trouble. Think about the stress that that would involve. What, if any, lessons should we learn from the underground church? Examples, written materials. We're going to go quickly through uh, as many as we can. Thirteen principles are in an essay titled Preparing for the Underground Church by Richard Vermbrand. 
That essay is available online. If you want to get it, let me know. I'll send it to you. I'll be glad to. Uh, some of the principles that uh, Vermbrand points out, we'll see. I'll mention a few others. He points out, he says, be certain of your faith. Doubt makes traitors. Be certain of your faith. Doubt makes traitors. Mentally prepare for suffering. Resist brainwashing. First, realize that the government, the official established church, or both of them acting together may malfunction and become ravenous wolves. The ravenous wolves may include terrorist organizations. We know of one uh, church, one group of uh, churches uh, in a country near the Islamic world. Actually, I should say they are uh, to some extent in it. They cannot meet underground, or they cannot meet openly. They must meet underground, and the reason is the Taliban is in a nearby area. If it ever becomes necessary, and I'm going to give you a homework assignment, ask yourself, were it ever necessary, what options do we have? What options exist as to location? What options exist as to how we would communicate internally. If you are told that within three weeks we could no longer meet in a quasi-underground manner, had to move to a full-blown underground manner, where would you go? How would you keep in touch with your people? What steps would you take to guard against discovery? One of the men that I talked with who's from the uh, Chinese house churches tells me that some of their studies, some of their people actually at times prepare for, they rehearse for a time when there is a government crackdown. What does that mean? That means they whisper the songs that normally they would be singing. It means that they learn to actually conduct themselves in a quiet manner. We prepare here for earthquakes. We prepare, uh, we've actually had security, uh, our security services here prepare for a time of uh, mass active shooters. It wouldn't hurt for us to think periodically and think through what would we do differently if we had to move to a full-blown underground manner of operation. Corporate singing is a challenge. If you have 100 college students in a small apartment uh, and they are heard singing, particularly singing Christian lyrics, it's going to be a dead giveaway that something is going on. Be ready to reassess priorities, what's truly important in your life. Continue in the Word. 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 15, Paul says to Timothy, you must continue. It is not an option. The importance of expository preaching. Uh, preaching in Hitler's shadow. They tell us that the German confessing church, when under persecution by the Nazi empire, developed what they call the text sermon. That is the attachment of the sermon to a biblical text 
The Bible text is not merely a motto placed at the head of the sermon, not merely a jumping off place, not merely the occasion for all sorts of associations, not a peg on which to hang a theme chosen by the preacher, but should be in concrete control of the preacher. The sermon should make this text more perspicuous to the hearer than it was before. Sound like expository preaching, anybody? At the same time, it should give pleasure so that one is thankful for it and it will be a source of guidance for life today. He goes on to say, the preacher's subordination to this text frees him from all other authorities. Expository preaching, the source of freedom and independence for the preacher. The value of memorization. Psalms 119.11, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I will not sin against you. One of the challenges that some underground churches have had to meet is that of reassembling as much of the written word as people had memorized and could put together. The whole counsel of God, no regional editing. The Nazi government tried to edit out those portions that would interfere with its anti-Semitic attempt. We don't think about it, but the confessing church fought a pitched battle during the eight years, something like seven, eight years, between 1932 and 1939 before a first shot was fired. They fought a battle for the authority and the completeness of the scripture. There are parts of the world, particularly India and the Islamic world, that teach that somehow or other, if in your teaching you say something that makes a person feel bad about their upbringing, about the religious beliefs that they were taught as a child, you have somehow or other violated their human rights. Regional editing. The idea is there to reduce, to eliminate passages such as Isaiah 6, when Isaiah says, I am ruined. When he finally sees the truth of who God is and what God expects. The danger of doctrinal aberration when the complete word is not widely available. A young man was telling me a week ago today, uh, oftentimes to, if you are in China, if you want to find uh, a house church, it's word of mouth. What do you know? How do you know that it's truly a, a, a right church? He says, we got involved in a church and then we realized over the course of time that it was a cult. Did I get it right? When the word is not fully available, there can and will be doctrinal aberration. Early 1600s, Roman Catholic missionaries were thrown out of Japan, and I hesitate to use them, but I think it illustrates the point. Uh, a group of believers, whether they were truly regenerate or not is another story, remained in Japan, and they were referred to as Kakure Kirishitan, hidden Christians. And if you look into the history of them, their doctrine becomes some weird blend of Japanese 
folk religion and Christian truth. But it leads, it illustrates the point that the failure to have fully available the whole counsel of God will lead to doctrinal aberration. Continue in prayer. Vermbrand points out the importance of spiritual disciplines. The scripture tells us be continually, be frequently in prayer. You see that in Acts chapter 12, verse 5, and then again in 11 through 17. That is when Peter is in prison. We've already talked about that. This is something that I think is uh, well worth realizing. Realize the value of a biblically-based document or confession summarizing the church's position on the issues at hand. I'll give you uh, what? I have five examples here. Calvin's Institutes. The Barman Declaration. This is prepared by and under the confessing church in Nazi Germany. The Scottish National Covenant. Wang Yi's Declaration of Faithful Disobedience. Available online. Read it. Well worth the reading. Wang Yi also wrote a document. It was issued in August 2015, 60 years to the day after Wang Mingdao, the leader of the first wave of the Chinese house church movement, had been arrested. It is titled 95 Theses, the reaffirmation of our stance on the house church. What's the key driving emphasis behind each of these documents? This takes us back. They have not bowed the knee to Baal. Ultimately, they are affirmations of the Lordship of Christ. Often very valuable when there has to be an underground posture. Sometimes a rallying phrase or battle cry becomes extremely helpful. Uh, One indigenous Korean pastor man by the name of Lee Yonji, preached a sermon from Matthew 24, 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The battle cry to the end. And in Korean, do I have anybody here who speaks Korean? All right, I'm safe then. Where? Okay. As I understand it, the phrase is gut kaji. That's okay. To the end. Let's say it together. Gut kaji. Okay, one, two, three. Let's get it right. Gut kaji. All right, we passed. Okay, let's have a little fun. How dear to us is the truth, the God who is truth and cannot lie, or are we willing to bow the knee to Baal? How dear to us is the truth? There's something very important. Expect infiltration, spies, and traitors. Judas. Alexander the coppersmith. You read about him uh, in 2 Timothy 4. Very possibly a former elder in the church at Ephesus. Demas, one of Paul's associates, his closest aides, left him, decided he loved the attraction of the world. 
One of the early church historians tells us that he went on to become a pagan priest. It was in the Church of the Redeemer in Uganda under Idi Amin, the pastor, Kifa Simbanji, learned that one of the church elders had been informing on the church to local government. He, of course, was very grieved. And he mentioned it to one of the other elders. And the other elder says, Kifa, there's nothing we can do. There is no community on earth where there is not a Judas. Plan on it. Expect it. Don't let it throw you when it happens. There may be needs. There may need to be a time or a manner in which we Try to screen out people who are coming. We're very careful. But in every community, there will be a Judas. There will be people who show up clandestinely. They are here as spies, critics. I know for a fact that it has happened here within the Shepherds Conference. Uh, Two days ago, uh, there was some material posted on social media. One of my colleagues Uh, was taken to task for one of the sessions he taught. It is entirely possible that we may have someone in the room even now uh, who's here for that purpose. And if, if by any chance one of you is here, I have one thing to say. Please, please, please be sure you get the spelling right. (laughs) Okay? You understand the point that I'm driving at. Are there trustworthy individuals within Caesar's household? That was true, biblically. Uh, We understand that one of Nero's cupbearers may have actually been a believer. And uh, Chrysostom tells us that that's what ultimately led to Paul's conviction and execution when that individual was found out. Uh, It's been true even within China. It's been true throughout history. If so, maintain lines of discreet communication. Now, one of the gentlemen asked a question here. uh, At some point, it may prove necessary to give up protected legal status. We are not there yet. The requirements for corporate status in America do not yet compromise biblical truth. That may not always be the case. We'll deal with that at the appropriate time. It may be necessary to give it up. Be ready for times of crisis. Mental toughness, mental toughness is absolutely crucial Peter in 1 Peter 1.13, Therefore prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Develop a biblical perspective on torture and physical punishment. Realize. Now, Vernbrand points out, he says, look, you can prepare your mind mentally to experience the ordeal uh, of the contact in the game of rugby. I played it. I know you can. Football, 
other types of intense contact. You can mentally prepare your mind to undergo the physical punishment of a beating for Christ. Realize, Colossians 1.24, that every blow that is inflicted upon you is ultimately directed at and aimed at our Lord and Savior. Anything that may be inflicted upon us is ultimately directed at Christ. Guard against your own human weaknesses. There is and has been a temptation to retract or equivocate under torture or extreme pressure. We may see something of that in Elijah. We definitely see it in the life of Peter. Thomas Cranmer, Wang Ming Dao. Cranmer and Wang Ming Dao have this in common. They made a retraction, and then they retracted their retraction. Wang Ming Dao walks out of prison. He realizes, "Uh uh-uh, this is wrong. He retracts that retraction, goes back into prison. They tried to throw him out later. He said no. He refused to go uh, until it was fully completed. We do not love our lives, Revelation 12, 11. They overcame because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. Matthew 10, 37, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Our love for Christ is supreme over our love for our families. I'm going to read this. I'm not sure that I can identify the source. Sabina Vermbrand, this is the wife of Richard Vermbrand. It is shortly after uh, the communists have conquered Romania. They summoned the religious leaders, Christian pastors, priests, and ministers of all denominations together After she's been hearing what has been said, she leans over. She says, Richard, stand up and wash away this shame from the face of Christ. They are spitting on his face. Richard was inclined to do that, most likely. And he looks at her and he tries to see if she's fully in. She says, if I do so, you'll lose your husband. Her eyes bore into his, I don't want a coward for a husband. Now, if you've been married for any period of time, you know that hearing something of that sort from your wife is going to inject iron into your spine. Vermbrand stood up. He went to the podium. Uh, Many people who were there and who had equivocated, compromised on their faith, And again, it's the issue of lordship. We're thrilled to see Vermbrand joining their cause. But instead of praising the communists, he praised Jesus Christ as the only path to salvation. Our first loyalty should be to God, not to communist leaders. This was being broadcast live across Romania. Thousands heard him. They realized what was going on. The communist uh, authorities 
tried to capture Vermbrand, but he was able to escape out the door. He was a hunted man from then on. He would later spend 14 years in prison. Much of what we've talked about here, he experienced, he put that together. He helps us to understand what we need to do, what we need to think of as we go forward. In the Korean Pentecost, the writer writes, as in so many of those cases of men who were faithful to the end, good kaji, the man was backed by a consecrated wife, a real prayer warrior. She would not pray for her husband's release. What did she pray for? She prayed that he would be strong and of good courage to the end. Good kaji. One of the problems that is faced in the underground church is that of needing to replace leaders often without the time we might like to spend in training. We need to meet both the requirements of 1 Timothy 5.22. Don't lay hands on a man too quickly. And yet first chapter of Titus, chapter 1, verse 5, Paul writes to Titus, look, you need to recognize men who are elders and put in order what needs to be done. There needs to be purposeful discipleship without wasting time. How long is it going to be? I asked a man uh, just within the last couple of days, how much time would you need to be able to train someone to hopefully turn this over a position of leadership to them, I said maybe two years. I'd say roughly ballpark, uh, that might be acceptable. It's not the length desired. Uh, but the fact is you may be dealing with a situation which I describe as ordination by cell phone. Ordination by cell phone. Randy Alcorn in his book titled Safely Home describes a situation that happened uh, in the house church environment in China. They had maintained a connection into the local police department. An informant tells, calls and tells them on a dedicated cell phone that the authorities are on the way. What he does, he sends out from that location the rest of the church before he does that, you can probably guess what I'm going to say, he gives the cell phone to the individual who now is going to be the pastor. Ordination by cell phone. Okay. I'm only mentioning this to illustrate the fact that we have to be purposeful in discipling. We have to be ready to pass on the reins of leadership. What the Chinese government did when they shut down four large house churches in late 2018, early 2019, they required them to have meetings of no larger than 25. Okay? You have to have somebody who's going to be able to take the spiritual leadership in that group of 25 and keep it from going into chaos. 
providing spiritual maturity, providing the Word of God. We have to be ready to train men who can step into that role. Be diligent to maintain unity. No unnecessary quarrels or conflicts. One of the problems that came out of COVID is that we came out of COVID sometimes angry at each other. There was division as to whether we should meet or not. No one would be stronger in belief that we needed to meet than I am. My namesakes. Actually, they were not namesakes, but they had the same name as I. Uh, I could not tolerate in any way slanderous or defamatory descriptions or comments concerning an individual who believed that maybe we should continue not to meet. We cannot. We do not have uh, the privilege of breaking up the unity that should be characteristic of the body of Christ. Be diligent to maintain unity. There's a double present imperative in Ephesians 4.3. No unnecessary quarrels or conflict. Limit your words and learn to be silent. Learn to be silent. We always tend to talk way too much in the Western church. Learn not to over-answer a question. Uh, when I've represented people in depositions, one thing you learned or you try to instruct, if a question can be answered no, say no. If it can be answered yes, say yes. Sometimes a lawyer in that kind of a situation learns to be able to quietly, effectively, and expeditiously kick someone on the ankle under the table. Uh, but it's important to keep this in mind. Vernbrand talks about what he refers to as, I believe, permissible stratagems. A man is on his way to a Bible study or to a meeting of believers. He stopped. That's where he's going. The man says, my older brother has died. We are gathering to read his testament. You guys are getting tired. Some of you, it's taken a little while to pick up <laughs> My older brother has died. We are gathering to read his testament. Another one made the comment. Man was stopped by Communist Party official, and he says, well, are you guys still meeting? He knew he was a believer. Man says, comrade, you know it's illegal to have prayer meetings. You see what I'm saying? You don't over-answer the question. Resist brainwashing. Resist brainwashing. I cannot emphasize strongly enough Romans 12, 2. Let your mind be transformed by the renewing of the word. Fight against an effort in the course of persecution and harassment to take our minds otherwise. Learn to cope with or embrace the sense of isolation that comes with times of enforced solitude. And this may be the most important thing. Fix your hope and expectation exclusively 
totally, solely on Christ. Sampanji writes, he says, probably, he says, together we determined to make Christ the beginning and the end of all our expectations. We determined to have no hope expect, except that which was derived from the scripture. He is all of our expectation. We have no hope other than what we will derive from the scripture. Second Corinthians 10, 18. It is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he whom the Lord commends. It is not he who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. What's the verdict? What would God say about the people who have faithfully been part of the underground church? Take you back to Hebrews. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. What's his verdict? Men of whom the world was not worthy. Men of whom the world was not worthy. I pray to God that all of us will merit that commendation. Now we have a piano over here. Uh, Do I have anyone who is a capable music leader? All right. Do I? All right. The second and third verses of the church as one foundation are before us. Can you lead us? Scornful wonderment see her sore oppressed by schisms rent asunder by heresies distressed yet saints their watch are keeping their cry goes up how long and soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war she waits the consummation of peace forevermore till with the vision glorious her longing eyes are blessed and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. Thank you, brother. Father, I thank you for the time that we have spent together. I thank you, Lord, that you have kept by your grace, by your sovereign election, a remnant for yourself. Father, I thank you that you have given us the conviction, the courage, the determination, the resolution to place nothing ahead of our allegiance to you. 
Father, may we always, 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 as individuals and as a group, and I pray this for all of the men who have been here at Shepherd's Conference this year, may we always honor the Lordship of our triune God, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for what you have done. I pray that our time will edify your people and resound to your glory in the decades to come. Amen.